As I mentioned earlier, this is um, this August uh, way back in August um, 2008 is when I started teaching this Saturday afternoon class, this Saturday afternoon sit. So I've been doing that for a very long time, and um, it's I always I never I don't remember the day. I don't remember what day it was. Uh, I just remember it was somewhere in the middle of August. And so I always like to reflect on that each year. It's like, you know, New Year's Eve or something that you spend a few moments reflecting on the year gone by, birthdays and so on, or anniversaries. And I was thinking about this the other day. George Bush was president. <laughs> um, I had different cats. I had cats that are long dead now. I had a different different car. I was working for Xerox. Um, I was a spry and young 53 years old. <laughs> just a child. And, um, you know, so much was different. So much was different. And if you all think back on your own year, your own lives 15 years ago, how, how different it was. And I saw something the other day that um, it was a little posting um, from Ruth King, and it's something she says a lot. She says, things are not permanent, not perfect, and not personal. And I, as I was thinking about that, and I, I love that, I, in the last couple of weeks, actually, I've been talking about perfection or uh, imperfection and uh, impermanence on Nietzsche. And so I thought it fit in really well with this 15-year reflection and not personal, um, which is really an important, an important teaching as well. And, and that's really the three characteristics. Things are not permanent. Things are not perfect. That's dukkha. And not personal. That's um, anatta. Um, you know, there's no fixed self. Things are changing all the time. So things can't be personal if there's no personal whatever the word is, to, to receive it. And, um, and when you can, and I really like this framing of it, and when you can move into that recognition of not permanent, not personal, not perfect, there's a tremendous amount of freedom in that. Um, really a lot of freedom. It, it, sometimes it sounds scary, but it's really quite liberating. And so I kind of want to wrap it into uh, these thoughts about the, the last 15 years. I started teaching. I was in teacher training, and I bumped into somebody at the Hollywood Farmer's Market. The Ho Hollywood Farmer's Market, I've only been to once in my life that day. And I bumped into somebody <clears throat> who I knew from the Sangha, and she said, why don't you start a class because there's no women teaching? And I went, okay, I will. And I started at the lovely time of 5 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And um, it seems to be okay because I'm still doing it uh, then. And I started my first class. I started with the life of the Buddha, and I just kept on going. Because you got to start somewhere, and that seemed like a good place. And, you know, um, thinking about, you know, I've heard many times there's only one Dharma talk. And really, the Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. It's just that there's so many different ways to come at it because we suffer in so many different ways. We, 
we we cling to so many different types of things and it shows up it's it's sneaky and um and subtle and the more you practice the more layers you can peel away they often talk about peeling the the layers of the onion and when I started teaching I was pretty awful because I didn't know what I was doing I was terrified I would spend days and days and days preparing a Dharma talk and I heard and I'm trying to fit in you know like 4,000 Dharma talks into one you know, 45 minutes. And I think that's fairly common with folks who are starting to teach. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a yoga teacher, and she said, yeah, her first few yoga classes, she was like trying to teach every pose possible that it would be impossible to to do. Um, But it's just trying to uh, get into it. And um, I heard a lot of people say, teach what you know, teach what you know. And I think what's important to understand about at least teaching the Dharma, the important part about it and the important part about the idea of teaching what you know, it's not teaching lists, it's not memorizing of suttas, but it's really about integrating the teachings into your life. How do you work with suffering? How do you work with things that aren't permanent or perfect or personal? How does that show up for you? And so I was, um, it, was a, it was a long journey for me. And it's about being willing to sit retreats and face our demons, face those things. Because when you start sitting, when you sit, if you have the wherewithal to sit a longer retreat, not everyone can, but at least taking some longer periods, maybe a day, a half a day to just quiet the mind and be willing to open up to those things that we perhaps have tamped down over the years, those, uh, gosh, Jack Kornfield has a great line about it. Um, I can't remember it. I'm going to paraphrase those things that we've been running from for so many years. Finally, when there's quiet, they like, la, 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 here we are. And we have the choice. This is why I think a lot of people don't stick with practice, a lot of people are dilettantes in many things because you get into it and just when it starts getting real and the rubber hits the road, it's like, I don't want to do that. That's common in a lot of things. And so they, they check out and they move somewhere else and then you get the surface over here and you get a surface over there. So the willingness to stay and take a deep dive into those emotions, into those feelings, into those things that we perhaps have run from our entire lives and then turn towards them. That is how you begin to integrate the teachings. Sitting retreats, sitting for long periods of time, sitting, facing those scary things and be willing to let go. You know? Nothing is permanent. Nothing is permanent. If we think if we take up that, you know, as I said, I talked about this a few weeks ago, and um, stuff we like isn't permanent, stuff we don't like isn't permanent, nothing's permanent. And I have to say, I'm grateful that I'm not permanent, because I'm glad I'm not the person I was then. I think that I've come a long way in these last 15 years, and um, because of the practice, I've been able to let go of those things that caused so much suffering in my life. It wasn't suffering in my life. It was suffering between my two ears. 
It was suffering in my body. It was suffering in my heart, in my belly. It was that stuff that I had been dragging along my whole life, you know? All this baggage of the shoulds and the woulds and the coulds and the, and the perfection that I wasn't even aware of. I mean, I think I talked about this two weeks ago. There's the, the um, intellectual understanding that perfection is impossible, but then there's the, the moving through life thinking we have to achieve a particular thing, which is always heading towards this idea of perfection. Even if it's not, you know, even perfection adjacent sometimes is, um, is impossible. And so how can we just be okay with the way it is right now? Um, I, was, um, I was talking to a very dear friend of mine. Uh, she's one of my oldest friends, and she is going through a lot of health problems. I mean, serious, serious, serious health problems that are life-changing for her. And so the ground is totally been taken out from underneath her. And it's so challenging. I mean, she was tooling along, had this idea of where she was going in her life and the plan for the next six months and a year, moving into, you know, moving and changing how she, her jobs and such, looking towards retirement. And that's just like, take this plan, open the window and toss it out because everything's changing. And so how do we deal with that? We think we have some control. Okay, it's gonna change in the future, but not right now. But recognition, how do we hold that scary stuff? How do we hold that scary stuff, especially when we don't like it? You know? That's the invitation. This, this, the, the practice of equanimity is to greet our experience, be willing to be intimate. Intimate is such an exquisite word. Intimacy. It's, it's, it's vulnerability, which is not what a lot of us come into practice with. There's, there's, some, there's some armoring because of our conditioned lives, because of what we've all gone through in our lives. There's, there's walls we've built as protection mechanisms which made sense at the time, but they don't serve perhaps anymore. But we're carrying around armor that served us maybe 15 years ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that doesn't necessarily serve anymore. And so the willingness to let go, because to cling is to suffer. To hold on tightly to things can be so painful. Can we let that go? And in talking to my friend, she had, she's coming to recognize that she had this idea of perfection, of accomplishment, and now that's all out. You know, she couldn't cross the T's or dot the I's. It's like, so there's a double whammy. There's impermanence and imperfection. But we, we each greet that every day. And I, I talked about this a um, couple of weeks ago that I'm, I've got this big project I'm working on, and I internally subconsciously I thought I needed to be perfect before I went to this this conference this meeting that I have to attend in a couple of weeks and and I just realized I sat with it and I realized oh I can't achieve what I think I need to achieve some old idea of what it's supposed to look like so all I can do is show up with what I have it's going to be what it is that's the best can we just be 
okay with the reality of our experience in this moment, you know. And I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago in another another sangha I, I sit in or teach at, and um, somebody was talking about, I was talking about perfection, and he asked the question, and it's like, yeah, but we have these expectations, you know, uh, like airline pilots and doctors and 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 that and I said and I was thinking about it it's like there's a difference between expertise in your field and trying to be the best at what you do and this idea this internalized idea because so much of it is the culture we exist in today this 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 uh, society we live in tells us no not quite there yet a little bit more buy this do that then you maybe get closer to perfection and so to let go of that internalized idea of having to reach some unrealistic goal. You know, I, I have, a, I have a, a, a saying that I like when I was so trapped by my ideas of what things should be. I was so trapped by this should be this way, this should be this way. It was so painful. This was like 25, 30 years ago. I was just in knots. And then I stopped and I said, wait a minute, who made that rule? And I thought about it for a minute, and I realized I had made the rule. And then I said, it's probably not a very good rule. And if I made it, I can let it go. Not there was not this, this, this rule from the universe coming down from on high. It's just some of this stuff I heard, and I went, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. And I, and I stuck to that, that fixed view. If we can let go of those fixed views about perfection, about permanence, begin to let that go, we create space. There's a tremendous amount of freedom in creating that space. And nothing is personal. It can feel really personal. And this is so important. It can feel really personal, especially when we're um, thinking about our lives and thinking about the future and thinking about the past. And of course it feels personal because it's a story all about me. I'm the star of my movie. And I love uh, Philip Moss, Moffat says, uh, talks about letting go. He goes, can you give up being the star of your own movie? Like, oh, you know, can we just recognize that um, things just happen? And, you know, if somebody yells at me in the supermarket because I bumped into them, it has nothing to do with me. That's a lot of, you know, stuff that was just kind of laying there. We, of course, we look and say, did I have anything to do with something? Is, is this something I caused? Or, but to let go of that obsessive I, me, my, it's about me. If I do this, then it'll be okay. And this sucks because that happened. And I did this. Um, there's so much self-obsession. There's so much self-use. I love the word sakayaditi, which means self-view, fixed views about self. It's not so personal. And the teaching around equanimity and the eight worldly winds is really powerful in pointing to this impersonal nature of things. Um, there's praise and blame. There's gain and loss. There's pleasure and pain. There's fame and ill repute. I heard somebody use two different words for fame and ill repute. I have to try and remember them because they were really good. Because I never say ill repute in my daily life. So 
there's that, um, that recognition that stuff's going to happen. The very first time I was in front of a, a, a class, I was with my teacher, and I, I talked for like 15, 20 minutes, and somebody got up and left in the middle of me talking, and not only did they just get up and leave, but they put their hand in the donable and pulled something out of it and ran out the door. So I could t choose to take that personally. It could have had nothing to do with me. He could have just thought it was a good opportunity to steal some Donna <laughs> and, and, and just let it be. And then if you have other folks come up to you at the end and say, oh, that was really good, I really enjoyed what you had to say, blah, 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 which one are you going to believe? I mean, I think because of our, the hardwiring of our reptilian brain, we oftentimes go back to the, the negativity side of it. Oh, what did I do wrong? You know, if there's 100 people in the room and 99 of them like you and one of them don't, you know, oftentimes our, our focus goes to that, that one person we don't like, that one person we don't like. What could I do better to, you know, make them like me? All right, there's a, oh, one of the Simpsons episodes has, um, I think it was Mel Gibson making a movie, and they showed it to 100 people, and everybody loved it except Homer Simpson. So Mel Gibson focused on Homer Simpson, and Homer, he let Homer tell him what to put in the movie, and of course it was a fiasco because he was trying to please this one person who was absolutely clueless. You know, but that was such a beautiful example of what we sometimes do when we're so focused and having it be personal and just instead of stepping back and saying, this is the way it is. And we all have different experiences of things. We all have, you know, two people can witness the same thing and have a totally different experience. Two people can eat the same meal. One person can like it, one person cannot like it. It doesn't mean one person's right and one person's wrong. It just means it's different. And so to get out of that, I must be right, that comparing, judging mind that's so often there, again, it goes back to that, that brain of having to recognize whether things there's danger or, or there's prey. Are we prey or are they prey? So, but we don't have to live that way much of the time and to, to open up. I also want to acknowledge that that the society we live in, some people do have to be hypervigilant because of the, 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 the animosity and the systemic uh, oppression that, that happens. And, and um, so it is, there are folks who do have to have that, that brain that's always kind of looking out. But, you know, um, we can also move into a place that, you know, maybe we don't have to all the time. And so this impermanence, this imperfection, this impersonal, it's all a part of the journey of letting go. And as I, I mentioned many times when I sat with Bhikkhu Analyo last year, he said the sum of uh, the Buddhist teachings can be summarized in five letters, L-E-T-G-O, let go. I know Ajahn Chah's book is also some, a collection of his teachings. I finished it and it was like L-E-T-G-O. When we cling to these ideas of shoulds and coulds and woulds, it's, um, it's so painful. And when we let go, it's so free. Um, and so this, these, these 15 years have been this continual journey of letting go. I've, letting, I've let go of jobs. I've let go of relationships. I've let go of ideas about myself. 
I've let go of some old demons that sometimes still show up. But now I, there's, there's the strengthening of awareness to go, oh, hello, old demon. Can I just soften to that discomfort that shows up when the demon shows up? That old idea, that old feeling, that old story, recognizing it's just an old story, you know? You know, and just to begin to embrace the constancy of change. You know, the constancy of this changing causes and conditions of how we move through the world. Everything changes. All the time. The last three years, I mean, there's been so much change in so many of our lives. Big picture changes, small picture changes. How can we be at ease? Because there is this, when we can be, when we can rest in equanimity, we can rest in the stillness. That's always available. If you think about it, the seven factors of awakening are you know, there's this mindfulness, this paying attention, this effort to stay right where we are, to come back from being lost, this, this um, curiosity. What is this? Oh, that's an old story. Can I let it go? And when we can live in that place of releasing, as I, the meditation instruction was resting in awareness, not getting involved in thinking. Then there's this ease, this tranquility that arises in spite of the stories, in spite of the praise and blame and, and pleasure and pain and, and gain and loss. In spite of that, there's this ease. It doesn't mean we're singing and dancing and jumping up and down. It means there's a steadiness, this, this, this collectedness of mind, this equanimity, this intimacy with our experience without the need for it to be different hugely, hugely expansive and free and liberating. And so I have, um, I am so grateful for the necessity of integrating these teachings on this teacher path, but also as a student. We're all students in this. And so I invite you to continually work towards integrating these teachings in your life because there's no there's no way around we may want to um try that spiritual bypass here let me take a book of suttas and hit it over the head with what i'm feeling hit, hit what i'm feeling over the head with it i used to think that if i could um figure something out and know that it might be a painful experience then i wouldn't have to feel it because i had figured it out and all that is is you know, trying to stomp on the reality of the emotions. And none of us win that fistfight with emotion or with reality. None of us win a fistfight with reality. So the invitation is to just be where you are, you know, be, be comfortable with impermanence and imperfection and everything being impersonal. So thank you, thank you, thank you, my friends, for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, and I promise, look, here's a virtual birthday cake. Yay! This is the Zoom birthday cake that gets used all the time for birthdays. So, thanks, my friends, for celebrating this uh, 15 years with me, and uh, much love to you.
Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.